So a nine month old infection is like the same immunity as like a two month old Pfizer vaccine. But if they're, if they, if you get it at the same time, then the natural infection provides a much higher level of immunity. Welcome to the Seamland podcast. I'm Hill Seamland and our guest today is Chris Masterjohn. Chris has a PhD in nutritional sciences and is currently doing independent research. In this episode, Chris is going to bring the latest update to his COVID nutrition guide that he published last spring 2020. If you want to get the COVID nutrition guide, then head over to seamland.com forward slash 272. This episode is brought to you by Self Decode. Self Decode is a genetics decoding company. You can get personalized health recommendations based on your DNA and the latest scientific research. They have numerous different DNA reports for different areas of focus like weight loss, longevity, gastrointestinal health, cognition, and even mood. Recently, Celticode came out with their 2.0 software that incorporates artificial intelligence in generating DNA reports. It's the most advanced and comprehensive consumer DNA service in the world. You can get a 10% discount with the code SEAM at selfdecode.com. Head over to selfdecode.com and use the code SEAM for a 10% discount on your personalized DNA reports. Chris, welcome back to the show. Sim, great to be here. Thank you so much for having me back on. Yeah, I'm uh, really uh, excited to talk with you because uh, like the last time we talked, um, it was uh, a year and a half ago or something uh, during the actual first, you know, first months of the uh, pandemic. And yeah. we talked about, you know, what, what it is and uh, what's the biggest risk factor, et cetera, et cetera. So like a lot of things have uh, changed <laughs> since that time. So uh, sure. yeah, what's, what's maybe like the biggest updates uh, for you? It, at a very high level, the, the, biggest, uh, the biggest difference between, say, you know, March through August of 2020 versus now is that in the first few months of the pandemic, we didn't really have any other tools at our disposal except mechanistic speculation and what did we know about other respiratory viruses. And so at that time, I was saying, I, you know, I was thinking of it from the perspective of, well, all these things work for cold and flu, but what do we know about how this virus is the same or different? And then brainstorm, you know, what are the things that we can be most sure generalizes and what are the things that we should be more careful of now, uh, you know, more than well, more than a year later, we now have over 40 randomized controlled trials of nutrients, you know, so along that path, we had lots of cell studies, we had lots of newly discovered mechanisms, we knew, learned a lot about how the, how the virus worked. Um, but it wasn't until towards not the very end, but towards late last, late 2020, when we had the first randomized controlled trial done on vitamin D. Um, and then ever since then, there were so, so many trials were registered and we just had to wait many months for them to come out. And now we have over 40 that have actually been published. So one thing that's been clear that is different now is there were reasons to be cautious about fat-soluble vitamins, especially vitamins A and D at the beginning. And part of that was, you know, we knew that they were helpful for cold and flu, but there were reasons to think that they might increase the uh, ability of the virus to get into our cells. And so I, at the beginning of the pandemic, I took a very cautious point of view towards the fat soluble vitamins. And I, you know, I said, look, we don't want to be deficient in these, but it doesn't seem to make sense to mega dose them either until we learn more. One thing that's become very, very clear with vitamin D is that you, uh, you want your 25 OHD, the main marker of vitamin D nutritional status to be in the 50 to 60 nanogram per milliliter range to uh, basically maximally suppress the risk of getting infected. Now, because vitamin D doesn't abolish the risk of getting infected, you never bring it to zero, but you bring it as low as you can, which is about cutting it in half. So in, uh, in 
everyone in the United States who had gotten a PCR test with Quest Diagnostics and had gotten a vitamin D test leading up to that in the year before, um, across over 200, across roughly 200,000 people, uh, the infection rate went from about 13% to about 6%. And so it was cut in half as you go up to 50 to 60 nanograms per milliliter. The other thing that seem my current interpretation of the six randomized controlled trials that have been published with vitamin D, and this could be subject to change when the other 20 something that are being done right now are published. But so far, it looks like if you go into the illness and you get sick and you have been keeping your vitamin D levels up, you could probably do, you could, you might be able to skip a loading dose, but you could probably do like a hundred thousand IU for one or two days uh, and then drop it to 10,000 IU would probably be the most logical thing to do. But if you went into that being very deficient and then you wind up in the hospital, it is way too late for vitamin D to do anything. And at that point, right. the doctors need to prescribe the more active form calcifidiol. Um, mm. And so, you know, when the other 20 trials, 20 something trials are, are, are published, um, we'll probably be able to add some nuances to that, but that's my current interpretation. Mm. So those vitamin D studies have just been using vitamin D alone, but there are separately studies suggesting that vitamin A and vitamin K are also protective. And so I just going back to research that I've been doing for the last 15 years, I believe that it is over the long term, certainly very important to balance those together. But based on the research that's coming out with COVID, I also think that it is probably the case that if you balance the vitamin D with, um, you know, for every 10,000 IU of vitamin D, if you get five or 10,000 IU of vitamin A, uh, two to like probably 200 micrograms of vitamin K2 uh, and 20 IU of vitamin E. If you have that balance, you're probably going to be in a much better position. Um, that was a lot. So I'll let you interject if you want, <laughs> but there's a bunch of other things that I added too. <laughs> right. Well, that's, that is something that is uh, still holds true in essence that the, we, we already, you know, speculated that vitamin D is super important for that. And there were initial uh, evidence to also point that, uh, your vitamin D status would uh, indicate that um, whether or not whether or not it become like a severe infection or uh, a mild one. So uh, it's just like it becomes more clearer now, like more evidence kind of support it. Right, right. But so before there was any before there was any COVID specific evidence, mm. um, there was definitely reason to 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 hypothesize that it would be helpful. It's just that there were also reasons to hypothesize that it might not be helpful. Okay. And then as the data came out, um, most of the data that was showing uh, um, well, first of all, the first two studies that ever came out have been retracted, and one one of them might have been so fraudulent that the authors don't exist. But okay. now, <laughs> so in, if you go back to the end of 2020, there were there were people who were from Indonesia who were saying that like, oh, the whole vitamin D thing is a scam. Now there's so much evidence from so many places that it's very clear. But one of the really one of the things that became really clear clear with the Quest Diagnostic study was none of those studies that were coming out in 2020 were really suggest, suggesting, actually they hardly any of them had enough data at higher levels to say that you're better off at 40 or 50 than you are at 30. What was really clear was that you didn't wanna be, you really didn't wanna be under 20 and you probably didn't wanna be under 30. And so I think now we, it's, it's become much clearer that the maximal protection against infection is actually at the higher level. 
Mm, gotcha. So there, there could be a scenario where, you know, a person could uh, even never get infected if they have, you know, very good protection and uh, essentially they're very healthy, then the risk of getting infected itself is uh, very low. And uh, chances are they may not like ever, ever actually get infected in the first place. No, well, not probably, but not with vitamin D alone. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, like one yeah. of them is vitamin D, but uh, like hypothetical scenario that even if you are exposed to the virus, then you may not even actually get infected. Well, yeah, it also it also depends what you mean by infected. So, um, because I, a lot if you get in, so if you get infected by some of the virus, but it doesn't really take up root, hmm. you're going to develop some immunity in your in your nose and throat and maybe your eyes. Okay. That is just uh, the mucous membranes become immune. But you might never develop antibodies in your blood where you could go to LabCorp Quest and have them tested to show that okay. you were infected. And so if we had the tools to look, I think we'd see that a lot more people were infected in that way. Um, but I think, you know, if you're if you're exposed, you're probably going to have some virus, at least in your nose or somewhere that at least makes one copy of itself. But whether that ever means anything to you, whether you would notice it is a whole other story. So I think you can probably bring huge numbers of people down to zero risk of getting the illness, um, even if they're exposed. Uh, but the, the interesting thing is that um, probably a lot of people now are immune that were not immune in 2020, just because they have been getting exposed either to low levels of the virus that they totally overcame, never realizing it, or even that they just, um, you know, were out and happened to get dead viral fragments on surfaces and gave their mm. immune system some exposure that primed it, but they never even had the virus, like, right, enter right. anywhere. So, yeah. <laughs> like, so is it almost impossible to know that? Specifically, it's, if you have it's, it well, so it's not well, um, there is a subset of people for whom it's al almost impossible to know, and then there's a subset of people for whom it is possible to know. So, if you go to uh, LabCorp Quest and you get anti nucleocapsid antibodies, those are specific to natural infection. And if you have those antibodies and you never knew that you were sick, then you're one of those people. But you can't okay. rule out that you were one of those people because there are a subset of people who's, and I think this is going to be extremely common in, common in children. Um, there's a subset of people whose mucosal immunity, meaning the, the, the immunity specific to their mucous membranes of their eyes, nose, and throat is so strong that it never gets its way through the mucous membranes in a way mm. that would produce a systemic response. Um, and so there are some, there is some subset of people with that immunity who will probably never know it. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. But what do you think about the idea that, uh, that everyone will eventually get exposed to it in some shape or form, like every one of the planets? Oh, probably everyone has already been exposed to it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't under, you would have to be living in a, 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 one of those bubbles for the, uh, right. people with the <laughs> immunodeficiency to not have some exposure to it. Um, mm. And so I, I just I don't I don't understand I don't understand how that's how it's even possible. I mean, even if you mm. even if you follow all the guidelines and stuff, it mm. just makes no sense that you didn't have like some virion that at one point you know crossed your path. Yeah. Um, in terms of whether everyone's going to get the illness, I think that's ridiculous because um, and I've gotten the illness twice, and so I'm not one of these people. But there's okay. clearly. Uh, probably billions of people that are 
just not vulnerable to getting it because of, you know, so many different types of immunity coming from so many different places. I mean, either the, the kids who have super strong mucosal immunity who, I mean, imagine the kid who got exposed, developed, you know, had had like six colds the year before, has really strong mucosal immunity, and then just got, you know, got exposed to COVID virus like seven times since 2020. And each time has had this really strong mucosal response that's just gotten better and better and better. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they could make it to 30 years old and never get the illness at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I, I think everyone has been exposed and I think probably everyone... I mean, maybe at some point everyone will develop the anti-nucleocapsid antibodies, but I don't think everyone's going to get sick. And I don't think there's that many people that like never came across one particle of the virus. I'm just yeah. guessing, but. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so they're pretty hard to uh, not get exposed in some shape or form. And uh, yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. I think what, what a lot of people miss is that there's a minimal infectious dose for every virus. Mm-hmm. Just because you have no signs that you were ever infected or ever tested positive or ever got sick doesn't mean that no viral virus particle ever crossed your path. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can still have like um, some aspect of immunity even if you never felt like sick or uh, because you got it and you your body just dealt with it. Or yeah, I mean, I think those are the people who you know if we had tests for like mucosal IgA antibodies in your snot. You might have those, but you wouldn't have the nucleocapsid antibodies in your blood, which are, you know, blood tests or what everyone's getting. And so I think those okay. do miss a lot of those people. Yeah. Hmm. But what is the, then the uh, biggest uh, factors that determines that uh, you do get infected in like a significant effect? Like you do get exposed to it and you get easily infected and you may get sick as well. Oh, well, I think those are separable. So, I mean, I think the... I mean, obviously being, being around other people that have it, it's the biggest risk factor for being exposed. And, mm-hmm. you know, most of the, most of the non-pharmaceutical interventions or NPIs that the public health establishment has been advocating has basically been to reduce that, you know, so the social distancing and the masking and the six feet apart and lockdown and all that stuff is basically, you know, don't visit your family during Thanksgiving and all the, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. is basically aimed at preventing you from being around other people. So I think that's the highest risk of exposure. Um, in terms of, uh, I mean, so there's, I'm not an immunologist. And so I'm, sur- I'm sure if you were asking an immunologist, they'd be able to go into all kinds of detail about what might contribute to an individual, you know, inter-individual variation in why some people might have a response what, to some low-level exposure and why others might not. I mean, one obvious factor is that some people are going to have higher expression of the proteins such as ACE2 that allows the virus to get into the cells in the first place. So people that don't have, um, people that have lower expression of those might be less vulnerable to, for the virus to, to replicate. Um, as we already talked about, vitamin D status is, is the probably the best nutritional factor studied to alter your risk of uh, ever testing positive. And as I mentioned before, you know, just ha- like, one of the differences between uh, young children and old people, uh, people, you know, I mean, adults, and then also old, even older people is um, just the level of mucosal immunity. And so that's going to play a factor in there too. Um, but then also what you're doing about it. I mean, so, you know, if you got vaccinated, for example, you're less likely to ever test positive, at least over the time frame that that's durable for. Um, and then you, you could, 
alternatively or in conjunction with that, um, there's also, you know, lots of things that you could do preventatively around your exposures. So one thing that I believe is helpful, but there's no data to really support it is using a zinc acetate lozenge before and after major exposures. Hmm. Um, but one thing that there is data, two things that there are definitely data for, um, the most data comes from povidone iodine rinses. And so uh, this povidone iodine is an antiseptic. Povidone is a synthetic chemical that is meant to deliver, to regulate the delivery of iodine so that it, uh, it doesn't all hit you at once and less is absorbed, but it's still available to kill uh, the bacteria. And it's been widely used in medical and dental uh, procedures for many, many decades. Um, I mean, pro probably close to a century at this point, but not quite. And uh, you could buy it on, on Amazon, uh, but usually it comes as a 10% solution. If you dilute it down to a 1% or 0.5% solution, uh, it can rinse the mucous membranes and it kills the virus in 60 seconds. And so doing that around exposures uh, could achieve the same thing. There was one, and I, a lot, so unfortunately, a lot of the research is published in these very uh, sort of obscure journals where some people don't trust them like they would like they would if they were published in JAMA or New England Journal of Medicine. And this study is one of them. But there's out of seven study out of seven randomized controlled trials with povidone iodine rinses, there's one trial that was done in Bangladesh that was published in a local obscure Bengali medical journal um, that they treat, it was the only one, it was the only one where anyone died. Um, mm, and sure. the other ones were just like, they took like, you know, 10 people and they rinsed their nose out and looked at before and after virus testing or something like that <laughs> when they had like real mild infections. But these were people who like actually got pretty sick during the pandemic mm. uh, when it was hitting them. And they, they didn't even, they weren't even allowing them to come into the hospital at that point. They were treating 12, 1200 people by telemedicine and they randomly allocated them to either get the advice to do the povidone iodine rinsing four times a day or not. And there was an 88% reduced risk of death among, uh, reported among the people who are using the povidone iodine rinse. So it seems very effective at killing anything. Um, yeah. and that, you know, as a treatment, it's at least by that one study, uh, it seems to work. But, you know, to your question, uh, that's, you know, if you're doing that rinse every time you go out in a big crowd, uh, then that's probably going to be one of the factors that could reduce you from ever, ever testing positive. And then there's one trial showing something very similar for a iota carrageenan based nasal spray where they had an 80% reduction in testing positive when people who were high-risk healthcare workers were using it four times a day, just doing one squirt in each nostril. Um, and the, the closest equivalent to that that's available in the United States is betadine naseball cold defense spray. Um, and so there's probably other things you can do around exposures, but those are the ones that have the most evidence. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, good to know. Obviously, uh, just maintaining your health and uh, because like... I think it's still true that, you know, the highest risk and uh, the most uh, casualties come from people who have like the metabolic syndrome and obesity and uh, diabetes and those kind of things, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure off the top of my head if there's much evidence on the testing positive front, but certainly if you're not over age 65, and especially if you're younger than 40, 
then being obese is the major risk factor for having a severe case. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, and I, there are things where there's not really a lot of evidence, but it's a little common sense goes a long way. And I think sure. <laughs> one of those areas is if your health is falling apart and you're in, you know, in, in the emotional pits and you're totally stressed out and you hate your life, you know, you're pro whatever you get exposed to, you're probably going to get sick with. Um, whereas if you're well balanced on all those fronts, you're going to be a lot more likely to handle whatever comes at you. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, what other things, uh, nutrition related, like what other like updates do you have or, uh, some other new additions that you discovered? Yeah. So, so the stuff we talked about is pretty much everything that really made the cut on a preventative level. Uh, but in the, on the, if, and when you get sick front, what I did in the guide was I, I tiered things according to how trustworthy, reliable, and consistent the evidence seemed. And with having more than 40 randomized controlled trials at this point, the bar is a lot higher than it was in March of 2020, but the bar is also significantly lower than it would be than it will be in like 10 years when we have lots of randomized controlled trials, plenty of time for peer review of everything and everything is really vetted. Um, and so what I did was I, I divided things in, into essentials for uh, then best add-ons, and then these might help just depending on the level of evidence. So the other things that I'd throw in as essentials are, are black seed oil and melatonin. Um, so with black seed oil, there were three trials done in three different countries using either black seeds or their oil. Um, the one that used the oil it is equivalent of 500 milligrams of a black seed oil capsules twice a day. Um, and that seems like it's probably, it could be antimicrobial effects and it also could be immunoregulation. It's unclear. And then melatonin nine or 10 milligrams a half hour before bed each night. Um, and then for the best add-ons, these are the things that where the evidence is a little bit lower grade. Quercetin phytosome, which seems like might act the exact same as combining quercetin in a one-to-one -one ratio with sunflower lecithin because quercetin phytosome is patented to combine those two things and a handful of excipients that are not listed on the label. Um, and that's because the, the lecithin helps it get absorbed 20 times better than with straight up quercetin alone. A lot of quercetin products combine with vitamin C and bromelain, but I have not been able to find any evidence in humans that those actually enhance the absorption, whereas the evidence is very clear that lecithin has an enormous effect. Um, so 1500 milligrams per day and three divided doses with meals. And then probiotics, there's a lot of, there's a lot of studies suggesting observational studies suggesting that probiotics given to people who have severe cases are, are dramatically effective from of, at reducing um, the severity and possibly death of, of the cases from many different strains where it's hard to apply any logic to what type of probiotic is working. But there's only one randomized controlled trial and it uses product, product called Zebevir AB21. And I import it from Portugal because I, I found a site where you can import it where, where it, the cost of shipping is not more than the product. I found one site where that was possible. Um, but I've also been talking to the company and 
there you can get it in the United States as a bulk powder if you inquire with the company that makes it. <laughs> but okay. you would have to, but there's no, you can't buy like a bottle of capsules of it. Um, and so I, I didn't, I don't know what the minimum purchase is to make that viable. I just got an email from the guy the other night. So it's possible that I'll find a better way to get that one. Um, but, uh, Brazilian green bee propolis is also in there. There's some good studies on omega-3 fatty acids that amount to, uh, 600 milligrams per day of the sum of EPA and DHA when given to, um, you know, at the start of illness. And then. Um, if someone develops respiratory distress, L-arginine is the, there's one, um, fairly sizable randomized controlled trial who published their interim results after they had 101 people enrolled. And it looks like it almost sevenfold hastens the recovery of respiratory distress. And it's possible that it dramatically reduces or abolishes the risk of death, but it's not, it's not possible to say that for sure yet. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's 1.6 grams of L-arginine two divided doses. I believe based, and there's nothing but a case report for this now that glutathione is very helpful for the respiratory distress. And then there's also some reasons to think CoQ10 and um, whey protein and maybe higher doses than the 200 micrograms of vitamin K2 that I mentioned before might be useful, but there's not a whole lot of evidence on that. So for example, we know that the virus decreases CoQ10 levels and we okay. know that, and, and we know that mechanistically, and we know that people who have severe cases have lower CoQ10 levels. And we also know that CoQ10 is important for energy metabolism. And we also know that fatigue is a major side effect. So I'm I'm a, it looks a little suspicious that the drop in CoQ10 might be contributing to the fatigue, for example, but no one's shown that to be the case, you know, but some of these things are like, is it really going to hurt? What's the risk of taking whey protein or CoQ10? Like not very much. Um, and so for these things where they might help and they're basically totally harmless, yeah, it's not a bad idea to throw them in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what about NAC? What do you think about that? So NAC is basically would be an alternative to glutathione. I think that the thing with NAC is, uh, I mean, it's, I'm not, I don't even know if it's cheaper than glutathione actually, but, um, so it's much more well studied than glutathione orally as the means of boosting glutathione status, but it has an obvious deficit, which is that sometimes so when you make glutathione, there, you have glutamate, which is the most abundant amino acid. No one ever supplements with it because it's the most abundant amino acid in the protein that you eat. And then you have cysteine, which is often the limiting uh, amino acid for glutathione synthesis. And then you got to bind it to glycine. Well, a lot in a lot of people, the cysteine is a limiting factor, and that's why NAC is used so much. But once you start supplementing with it, glycine can easily become the limiting factor. And so if you're using NAC and you're using it alongside a similar amount of glycine, then that's probably going to be one way to get around that. But uh, supplementing with glutathione also gets around some of the synthesis issues. Um, and even though it's not entirely uh, absorbed intact, it's a myth that it's not absorbed at all intact. Um, and it's absorbed as a mix of intact glutathione and, and dipeptides that are more easily synthesized into glutathione than the individual amino acids. So I'm personally a fan of supplementing glutathione, um, but NAC is 
they're a little redundant in the sense that NAC is aimed at mm. the same purpose yeah. as supplementing glutathione. For sure, yeah. So true is like one or the other. Yeah, I mean, there's no harm in doing both. It's just <laughs> that the goal of supplementing glutathione or supplementing NAC is the same. And so if you want to do it with a mix or you want to do it with one or the other, it's that's sort of one thing that you're trying to do, whereas it's mm. separate from boosting your fats, your vitamin D levels or using antiseptics or any of those other things. Mm. Yeah. Um, can you also like talk about the difference between uh, the new Delta variant and uh, the first one? Oh, well, there's a lot of variants uh, <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not totally immersed in the variant landscape, but uh, I, I think one of the, um, I think one of the most striking things and the, the thing that I'm currently researching right now, I'm working with an immunologist to uh, submit a paper on this for peer review. One of the interesting things with the Delta variant is, is that it seems to have develop, uh, accumulated some mutations that allow it to get a, a way around uh, the immunity that people have built up to the spike protein of the previous variants. And what's interesting is... Um, if you look at natural immunity, it has a very broad set of targets that aren't just narrowly based around the spike protein, whereas, and also the inactivated vaccines. So for example, in China, they use CoronaVac, which is an inact, they just basically kill the virus and <laughs> inject you with it. Uh, that also has a broad set of targets like, like natural immunity would. But the, the, um, the major, the, all the vaccines used in the United States um, and the major ones used in the West are either mRNA vaccines like Moderna and Pfizer, where the mRNA codes for the spike protein, um, and then the spike protein is is made inside your uh, inside your cells, or the um, adenoviral vector ones like uh, Johnson Johnson and uh, AstraZeneca, where they're basically just delivering the spike protein to you. All those are narrowly based on the spike protein, and they're all narrowly based on the pre-delta version of the spike protein, the original spike protein. Um, so the pre 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 delta, um, and so it seems like though um, it's it seems like there are. I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. It's it's um, but my viewpoints are are is still in flux. But my current position is that it appears that the vaccines reduced the transmission of the alpha variant very effectively. And in doing so, made room for the Delta variant to take over. Mm. And the Delta variant now evades the anti-transmission of effect of the vaccines such that it may have dropped to zero. And now not right. all studies support that. And there's and so what, one of the things I'm doing right now is to try to review the methodological differences between the studies that found that it just dropped a little bit or it dropped to zero. Um, and there also seems to be a time component. So, for example, in the studies that do find a transmission reducing effect um, of the vaccines, it's not it doesn't last forever. <laughs> and yeah. so, for example, with um, with AstraZeneca during the alpha variant, there was a, a study suggesting that it the effect against transmission dropped to zero at week 12 afterwards. And so it's just interesting because a lot of the a lot of the things that people are trying to do from a public health perspective to separate vaccinated people from unvaccinated people. No one's asking them if it's 12 weeks old and you're out. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, so it's, but yeah, the, the general perception I'm getting is that the, the, the vaccines are reducing transmission of older variants 
and allowing the Delta to take over. Uh, and now, now they're not very effective against the transmission of the Delta at all. Um, of right. course, there's other differences with Delta. And so I think whether it's, it is, it, it is generally infecting younger people. And so on a population level, it looks like it's, it's not as bad as the previous variants, but there's controversy over whether you, when you control for demographics, it might be more severe. Um, it's, it's, there's no controversy that's more transmissible, but there's some controversy right. over whether if you control for who it's infecting that, you know, Delta, inf Delta and Alpha infect the same person, Delta might have given them a worse case. And that, there's some controversy over that particular question. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's almost like the, um, yeah, I mean, like it's, it's a very controversial topic that the, uh, you know, uh, how effective the vaccines are and, uh, you know, whether or not they should be categorized as giving immunity, et cetera, et cetera. And how long does it last? So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> so it would seem that you would need like, uh, again, like these booster shots for the Delta variant and maybe like a future variant as well. So most of the waning efficacy, has, although I just mentioned that the, that for trans, the transmission effect that the AstraZeneca was, was looked like it had seriously waning efficacy, mm -hmm. but just in terms of efficacy against, against the person who took, uh, against infection in the person who took the vaccine, um, the waning efficacy for that has basically been completely shown with the Pfizer vaccine. So Pfizer seems to overwhelmingly be the least durable, whereas Moderna, which has almost the same technology, possibly because it has a higher dose, uh, seems to last a lot longer. But we still only have like six month data for any of these things. So to say it lasts a lot longer is basically to say that it doesn't, it didn't drop under 90% efficacy at the six month time frame. Um, but then, so because efficacy again i think it's much clearer that even even for delta the the efficacy for the person who took it is much higher than the efficacy against that person transmitting it so it, it seems especially for like the severe the severity of cases but there's a couple of things that i have really big questions about and so one of those is that in all the clinical trials the way that they actually in almost all the clinical trials um and in the in the main, the primary endpoint for all the clinical trials was symptomatic infection, and and that almost always meant that if someone got sick, they then went to get tested, and if they got if they tested positive, they were a case. Mm -hmm. And so, one of the problems with that is most of those trials don't tell you the that whether the vaccine reduced the probability of testing positive on the PCR because you only got tested if you were sick. But the other thing they don't tell you is they don't tell you in any of the reports how many people had suspected COVID-like illness who got tested. And so in the Pfizer clinical trial, Peter Doshi of the BMJ pointed this out. In the, in the FDA's review of the Pfizer trial was revealed a fact that was not published anywhere in the peer-reviewed papers from the Pfizer trial, which is that there was 20 times more suspected COVID than there was COVID. And okay. so that means that 5% of the people that thought they had COVID tested positive. And mm -hmm. so if you look at the vac vaccination of efficacy against suspected COVID, it would be a non-significant 12% reduction over the course of the two-month two trial data. Okay. And if Pfizer has waning efficacy, and if that's a real effect, it might have gone to zero or negative like way before six months. We don't know. Um, 
And so that raises the question of, uh, is there, presumably there's some breakdown, some spectrum of mild, moderate, and severe suspected COVID-like illness. <laughs> that is the vast majority of, of what people are getting sick from that, you know, confirmed COVID is a minority from. And so it, I mean, that's one question I have against efficacy. I, I, I firmly believe that someone needs to sue these companies to mm. have the, to have the rock clinical trial data subpoenaed because we deserve to know that. I don't think they should be able to just leave it out of the peer reviewed paper. I think the public has a, a, a you know, should be able to know that. Um, and then I would also, I think this would be a lot harder because the, the mortality data is spread across electronic health records kept by many different private companies, I believe. I'm not an expert in electronic medical records, but I would also like to see um, the data come out in just like, what is the population level all-cause mortality uh, at various intervals after vaccination? So just collate it all, you know, three, because everyone can argue about what's, uh, what's, really attributable in terms of, you know, what's really a COVID death um, or what's really a, a vaccine side effect. But with the exception of, you know, Elvis or Jim Morrison, it's generally non-controversial whether someone died. And so um, just knowing like the totals who died, I, I feel like if, um, you know, the, peop the people worried about like net, net on net uh, safety, can just shut up and go home if the all-cause mortality is 50% lower after in the six months after vaccination. But if it's 50% higher, then we would want to know that because even if you can question whether what you know what's attributable to what, that's a that's a signal that is worth paying attention to. And so I think those data are probably not going to come out unless the government the government makes it come out. Hmm. Or yeah, someone yeah. makes the government make it come out. <laughs> Which is yeah, very uh, highly unlikely, I think. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, like the uh, it did come out in the Pfizer review. And so I think, okay. you know, with FOIA requests and, and law, I mean, there's many thousands of lawsuits going around, going on in the United States. And so I, I think, I don't think it's just going to, I don't think anyone's just going to pull it out voluntarily, but I think it might get forced out at some point. Okay, well, that's good to know. Well, let's hope it's come like at the right time, or it's not too late then. Um, but uh, what about the, like the yeah, the booster shots? Like, um, there's going to be booster shots already out. Uh, but uh, would you imagine that there's going to be again like uh, how, how frequently they will have to do them, and uh, what, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, if you look at the Pfizer data, it looks like it depends like what your minimum efficacy that you want to maintain is. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to not lose any efficacy, you probably need to do them every three months or even, or even two. But if you're trying to maintain efficacy above a certain threshold, then I, I mean, I don't, I'd be surprised if they're going to do the booster shots that often because it, it doesn't, most people probably don't want to do that. doesn't look too good. Not, not studied at all. Um, and so I don't, I don't know what they're doing. I'm not, I'm not privy to the regulatory conversations, but I would imagine they're going to be rolled out as you know six month boosters on on for Pfizer. I believe mm. I haven't I haven't kept super up to date on what Israel is doing, but I believe they have something like that right now. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, from Israel there was this data that uh, the natural immunity is still superior to uh, the vaccination. 
Oh, yeah. And so, you know, just to be clear, this isn't an argument to go out and get infected. But for <laughs> people who, because, you know, people always, uh, if I ever say anything about the natural immunity comparison, I always get people saying, why are you telling people to go out and get infected? I'm not telling anyone to go out and get infected. But for people who were infected, um, if someone got the Pfizer shot and got, uh, according to the Israeli data, if someone got the Pfizer shot and someone got uh, infected at the same time, you know, over a six month period or so, the, at any given time point, the person who got naturally infected has 13 times better immunity against, uh, against getting, Ill, getting illness at all, and 27 times the immunity against getting a serious case. Um, and so, you know, natural immunity is, if you've gotten it, natural immunity does come at the risk of you could have died the first time around. Um, but if you if you got natural immunity, it is matched for time vastly superior to to the Pfizer vaccine. That's clear. Um, you know, some limitations to that are that's all from Pfizer data. You might get different results if you're looking at Moderna or one of these other ones. Um, and uh, and that and also that doesn't tell you anything about um, hybrid immunity with getting okay. infected and then getting vaccinated. So it does seem that if you get vaccinated after you get infected, you drop the, uh, you get like an additional 20% drop in the infection rate for each shot. Okay. Um, you know, but for, I've, I've gotten COVID twice and there's no data on for people who got COVID twice. Um, you know, but to me, I mean, I, I my, I guess the political opinion, but I, I feel like I should be allowed to go to the gym <laughs> yes. If I have 27 times better immunity than the guy next to me, um, yeah. I don't, I don't understand why it has to be another 20%. <laughs> I don't mm. understand why 27 times isn't good enough. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's no data that contradicts that. I, I had, I had a good, a good friend, uh, comment on my Instagram last night. You're, you're just checking the cherry picking the preprint data and actually, no, I'm not. All the studies that that may on the surface seem to contradict that are looking at proxy markers for the infection rate, like antibody levels. And every study on, on actual infection rates is consistent with that. It's just that those numbers are bigger because they're the only that's the only study that controlled for time. So a lot of the studies found similar protection if they were looking at vaccination in 2021 versus an infection in 2020. But the reason that it's similar is because you gave it over a year. You gave it nine, nine to 12 months for the natural infection to wane in its efficacy a little bit to meet the recent vaccination. So a nine-month-old infection is like the same uh, immunity as like a two-month-old Pfizer vaccine. But if, they're, if, they, if you get it at the same time, then the natural infection provides a much higher level of immunity. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so uh, the best maybe the best, best scenario would be like if you are, you know, either either or like if you already are vaccinated or if you already got the infection, then if you want to fully maximize <laughs> the immunity, then you can opt for the second um, immunity as well, which whichever it may be. Yeah, well, I mean, one that's the only thing that's really studied as an alternative to being infected once or just being fully vaccinated is. What happens if you were previously infected and then you get vaccinated? There's a lot of other things that we don't know. So, for example, right. I'm always wondering, like, now that I've had it twice, should I personally be a little bit less careful about avoiding exposure? Because it seems like if you got like tiny bits of 
dead viral fragments or um or like virus below the minimum effect infectious dose that that's probably like a booster to natural immunity mm -hmm. um but i i would never tell anyone to go out and do that because it's not yeah, yeah. studied and i'm <laughs> i would get all kinds of flack for telling people to go get covid i'm not telling anyone to go get covid um, <laughs> yeah. but i but it would be very it would be very fascinating just to see the research on you know what happens to all those different types of immunity boosting exposures that you have options of yeah yeah and uh, it, it should still give you like the, uh, you know, option to cho or to um, not re be required to get the vaccine because, you know, obviously if you have better immunity naturally than, uh, <laughs> and the vaccine carriers that can still spread the virus, then it doesn't make sense to kind of force it uh, down to people. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it just, just from a, just from selecting the, like, if you're trying to block people out of entry into a restaurant or you're trying to block people out of gym or you're trying to fire people so they're not a teacher anymore, um, you're not interested in the, a lot of people misunderstand this. They think that you want to do all these fancy, sophisticated way, ways of controlling um, for confounding factors. No, that's not true. You want entirely confounded data if you're trying to understand um, what is my ability to know whether you're transmissive? I don't care if you're more or less transmissive because you're older or you're younger or you had diabetes or you didn't or you're overweight or you're underweight or you're jacked. Like those, all those things will, will determine the general efficacy of the vaccine or any other thing against transmissibility. But you're not trying to understand cause and effect when you're the bouncer at the restaurant. You're trying to understand, is this person dirty or clean? And mm -hmm. so if if you're using one thing like vaccination status, you want the fully confounded data. If I take a thousand people off the street, what is, what is knowing whether they have that passport? What does that tell me about whether they are, what their probability of transmitting is? And from that perspective, it offers basically nothing to you in order to give you confidence that I can let that person in, they won't transmit. I can't let that person in because they will. Like it doesn't give you that, level of knowledge about someone at all um and so i think you know on that on that that's how i think about that mm. um i think it, that's a separate question from asking like you know if you control for everything and you take this one person and they vaccinated versus they didn't what's the effect on transmission after that i think that's that's going to be a more nuanced answer but why does the bouncer at the door of the restaurant need to know that they don't mm -hmm. yeah that's true um yeah, and it's all obviously, you know, because it, with the uh, vaccine passports, it's also the problem that if you have been vaccinated, uh, but your immunity has been waning off to very low levels, then you can still go to these places and you can still spread it. And uh, on the, on papers, you're fine, <laughs> but uh, in reality, yeah. you're you're not. So again, it's, you know, yeah, that's it that's work. true, <laughs> and that that's very true. And then there's another problem with it, which is that what is what behavior is that explicitly encouraging it's basically fooling everyone into thinking that the these things are so effective against transmission that you can basically do whatever you want um and so it's actually reducing protective behavior among people who may be at least as transmissive especially when asymptomatic and so it's leading to a lot of behavior change while it's I think is probably causing the Delta variant to take over at the same time as causing all these, you know, unequal behavioral changes 
that I think just on the whole facilitate a lot more transmission. Yeah. What about like some mutations or something? Uh, could that also promote more mutations uh, to come? So that's super controversial and it's, and it's, it's not the thing that I feel most confident about, but regardless of, of where the mutations come from, which is a totally separate issue from what promotes them to take over, right? Like, so the, all the variants of concern were around before any of the vaccines had EUA approval. But if you look at the total prevalence of variants of concern as a proportion of the SARS-CoV-2 genomes that are sequenced, it's a hockey stick graph where it was going up and up and up like this until December 2020. And then in December 2020, there's an inflection point where it goes like this. And so I think I have no idea what caused the variants to emerge. But in terms of what they're selecting for, I think it's pretty clear that if the variant allows um, if the variant allows that virus to escape immunity to the spike protein and everyone's you know, there's a mass rollout of immunity that only is at that spike protein, then of course, that's going to alt, you know, that's going to be the thing that's going to select to make that mutation flourish. Um, and so I, I think that's, I think that's clear as to, as to what would create more variants versus less. I'll leave that to, I'll leave that to someone else to tackle because that's a, a topic that I haven't really dove into and other people are much more qualified than I am to, to say anything about it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but, but do they, uh, do they cause less uh, severe outcomes, the vaccines like that? They, uh, you're going to experience less uh, severe symptoms if you have been vaccinated. Yeah. I mean, well, I think it's clear from the tr clinical trial data that they do. Um, but there's, but there's, there are some questions around that. So as I noted before, we don't have anything from the clinical trial data about the severity of COVID, suspected COVID uh, like illness. You know, so I don't know if, um, I mean, we know from the FDA review of the Pfizer data that COVID was 5% of total suspected COVID like illness. We don't know anything about that, or I don't think we know any, I don't know anything about the, the severity of the suspected COVID like illness. So I think that's one of the, one of the questions that we don't get even in the observational data is that everyone talks specifically about COVID severity and death, and they should be talking about all-cause mortality because there, there's people getting sick with suspected COVID-like illness that test PCR negative, and we don't know what's happening to them when people are talking about COVID deaths. Um, then the other question is there, you know, around durability and around translating the clinical trial evidence to the real world. And one of the things that is hard to tease out is um, in, in the countries that have really good national comprehensive data sets like the UK and Israel, um, they rolled out higher risk people first for the vaccine and lower risk people later. And so the data when you're looking at like who's dying of COVID is confounded by that because the more vaccinated they are, the higher risk they are. And so you really can't look at the raw data and infer vaccine efficacy. You have to do statistical adjustments for the risk level of the people and stuff like that. But one thing that is clear is that, um, and this is dynamic, so it's changing, but for much of this year, the majority of people in both countries who were dying of COVID were vaccinated. And so it's, I don't, I'm, I will not say that that means that the vaccines are not protecting against COVID deaths, 
I think they are protecting against deaths from people who have a positive PCR test. I think hmm. that's almost almost indisputable. Um, but you know, when people come out and say this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, uh, like what are you talking about? Not if <laughs> not if you properly vaccinated the high risk people first, like they did in the UK and Israel. It's a hmm. pandemic. It was a pandemic, and even this is turning now in the United States. I think because. In the U.S., everyone was anecdotally saying, well, 97% of people in my ICU, and then that became, well, 80% of people in my ICU, and then there's sporadic reports of, well, 45% in our hospital, right? So I think that is changing. Um, but I think you know the reason that early 2021, you could say 97% of the people in the ICU, by the way, meaning who tested positive for COVID, right? Um, but the reason they could say that is partly because the U.S. didn't do a very good job rolling out early vaccination to the highest risk people first. And, and the U.S. has been bizarrely focused on vaccinating people with natural immunity and kids yeah. uh, at the expense of that. And so that's part of the reason is what the, the, the statistical name is the uh, Simpson paradox, if I remember that right, for why the high risk people, if they got vaccinated first, would be um, would, you know, look like they're dying of COVID more. Um, and so the, but ironically enough, that paradox is a virtue of having appropriately vaccinated the highest risk people first. Mm. If you fail to do that, then it, it, it's some, your vaccination is a much more random scatter across the population. You don't have that paradox. And at least for a few months at the beginning of 2021, it looks like almost everyone who's dying of COVID is, is unvaccinated. Um, but you know, the, anyway, my, my point is I do think the vaccines are effective specifically at reducing death in COVID positive people. I have no idea about all cause mortality. I want us to see that data and can't right now. Um, but in the UK and Israel where they have comprehensive national data sets and they appropriately rolled out vaccines to high risk people earlier, you do see that for most of 2021, the majority of people who are dying were vaccinated. So it is false to say this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. You can't, you can't binary. You can't in a binary way say this person's at risk, that person's not because of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> that's true. Um, yeah, I think we could. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of uh, nuance to this, and people have to like do their own research as well and uh, make sure yeah they check everything else and make you know educated decisions uh, at the end of the day. Uh, but is there something like the that we didn't cover, or do you want to talk about more? Uh, add. Um. <clears throat> I mean, not really, but I guess the way that we could synthesize all of this is um, I think there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's numerous ways that are important to protect yourself against COVID. You should do your own research. That does not mean that you shouldn't listen to what experts say, but you should listen to what experts say, but you should seek critical views. If you're, you know, if you're qualified, you should read studies on PubMed. Um, if that's over your head, you should, you know, listen to people from a diversity of viewpoints who do read the studies on PubMed. Um, you should make your own decisions. And none of these things are mutually exclusive. So there's nothing stopping you from getting uh, your vitamin D up and getting vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera. What's important is that you are empowered with the knowledge to make your decision about how you want to combine those different things. And you have the right to decide with your own body, you know, which one of those things you're going to choose and in what combination. Uh, and my goal here is just to empower people by helping people get educated about what they can do for themselves. Hmm. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. That's uh, that's what we all try to do. And yep. uh, yeah, so now great talking with you. Great to catch up. Um, it's great. Before, great before, up. Yeah, before I ask my last question, um, where can people learn more about you and uh, where can they get the guide? So I'm at chrismasterjohnphd.com. Uh, you can get the guide at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash COVID guide. And I'm sure you'll put a link in the description. Yeah. Um, and then I'm at Chris Master John on, on social media um, while I'm still there. Uh, there I <laughs> have run into some signals that I'm probably going to get deplatformed de from Instagram at some point. So mm. I'm being a little bit uh, more conscientious about directing people to alternative ways. So best way to make sure you stay in touch with me and uh, never lose touch with me would be to sign up for my occasional newsletter at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash newsletter. Okay, well, that's good. We're going to put all the links in the show notes. And uh, my last question Perfect. is, uh, yeah, what's this one piece of advice or habit that you wish you'd have sooner? Say that again, that I, that I wish I knew sooner. Is that what you said? Yeah, wish you adopted sooner. Wish I adopted sooner. Um, well, I, I wish that I wish that I knew that the stress of 2020 was coming earlier because <laughs> I would have, I would, you know, I, I feel like I had, I had been done, I had been doing very well at psychologically coping with the level of stress that I had in my life. And I never thought to have a game plan for dealing with what would happen if the stress went up 5x or 10x. And so I feel like I've done a lot of figuring out about how to get back to back to my, my healthy self in 2021. Um, but going forward into the next <laughs> disaster that might hit, I think I'm going to have a much better stockpile of, you know, how am I going to manage my stress level? How am I going to manage my finances? How am I going to manage all these things to make sure that I stay very well uh, emotionally and psychologically balanced if everything that I think I have as my privileges around me fall apart for a year? Hmm. So I think just having a having a having an emergency plan, I think is the is the wise advice that uh, I wish that I paid more attention to prior to 2020. Hmm. Yeah, that's definitely good. <laughs> always, always good to be uh, prepared. Uh, but yeah, other than that, uh, I think yeah, it's been great talking with you. And uh, let's, hope, you, let's, let's hope let's uh, hope you don't get deplatformed. And uh, let's hope uh, I'm working more... on it. <laughs> <laughs> let's hope also like uh, more uh, like yeah, these rational conversations uh, could uh, take place on uh, social media. Yeah, yeah, I'm all for rational conversation. <laughs> awesome. All right, Sim. It was great right. being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming.